For our first song, I'd like to, to turn to number 369, Springs of Living Water. And let's stand and pray before we get to that. Heavenly Father, we do just thank you so much, Lord, for this day that you've given to us, and thank you so much for the opportunity to be in your house, to come and worship you, and to sing glory to praises to you, Lord. Please give us the strength we need, Lord, and just help us, Lord, just to give you the glory for it all, and help us, Lord, just to always remember you in our hearts, Lord, and help us just to do our very best to be servants for you, Lord. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Okay, number 369, Springs of Living Water. song just a few pages over to 375 you may be seated Thank you. 
our next song, we're going to go ahead and have the Lord's Supper. Good to see you out this week, and uh, I'm still having just a little bit of problem talking, so if I'm not very clear, ask the Lord to help me to stay clear. Okay, here's a few prayer requests. First of all, uh, Michelle, that's Carolyn's niece. Where is, where is that? Oh, she's back here. Hello. Can you look there? Yeah, um, my niece is in the throes of COVID, and um, she's been on a bent for the past two weeks. They took her off of that, and now she's trached, which is good. She's sitting up, but unfortunately now she has a blood clot in one of her legs. That's not good. She's been running a fever for the past three days at 103. She's also got some kind of blockage in her stomach that they're not sure, but they can't do exploratory surgery because she, her lungs are not okay with it. And it's like she's just not coming through this. And we just really, really need to pray that God will strengthen her because this is just, it's awful. And it's just not getting better. So please, just, just pray for strength for her and my brother and his family. Thank you. Anybody like to pray for Michelle and her family? Volunteer? Okay, Larry. Okay, we also have another family, Michelle and Dwayne. They usually sit back there. And uh, they just had a baby girl. Okay? Anybody like to pray for Dwayne and uh, Michelle? The baby's name is Charity. Anybody like to pray for them? Okay. Um, Roger is here with us today. Uh, he just had an operation, and uh, they, took, they took a lump from behind his head here. So uh, anybody like to pray for him for continued healing? For Roger? Okay. And then um, uh, Cynthia's mom, Beverly, she has uh, macular degeneration. And um, uh, John, can you turn on my mic, please? Thank you. She has uh, macular degeneration, and uh, she has a leakage in one of the eyes, they just discovered. So uh, can you pray for uh, Beverly Stillabauer? Well, I'll say that she lost a lot of her sight. Yeah, she lost all of her sight. Pray that she heals all of it, but yeah, mm -hmm. just pray that it doesn't continue physically growing. That's okay. It's a real concern. Okay, Beverly Stillabauer. Okay, and then um, Jonathan Wines, the grandson of um, Diane, oh man, Diane, he is um, at a, a marine boot camp right now, and he is, not, he is in an um, activity called a crucible, which is testing their longevity out in the field on very little sustenance. So anybody like to pray for Jonathan? I guess I will. Let's start off with Michelle Carol Carolyn's niece, whoever's praying for her.
for Dwayne and Michelle and Charity. For Roger. For Beverly Stillabauer. Father, pray for Jonathan. I ask you to give him special strength through this testing and crucible. I pray you help him to complete the course and keep him close to you. In your son's name, amen. Okay, we're, we're in um, Matthew 26. Verse 26. And while they were eating, Jesus took some bread, and after blessing, he broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And when he had taken the cup and given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. For this is my blood of the covenant, which was poured out for many for forgiveness of sins. But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine, from now on till that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. As I was thinking through this passage, I was struck with this thought that we find hope here. Jesus said, on that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. He is talking about a future 
bodily resurrection for those of us who know him personally as Lord and Savior. And that's hope. In this world, we have tribulation. But in eternity, we will be with our Lord and Savior. And it's all because of his death on the cross for you and me. And so as we partake of the elements this morning, let's, part, let's partake of them in hope. Larry, could you pray for us? Please take your cracker. Okay. While they were eating, Jesus took some bread, and after a blessing, he broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. Ask John if you could pray, please. Please take your cups. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink from it, all of you. Dear Jesus, thank you for your shed blood for us. May we never forget. In, in your name, amen. For our next sim, I'd like to turn to number 542. The, the bulletin says 552, but it's 542. There's sunshine in my soul.
to turn to 599 and please stand for this one. I'm not sure if I know this one completely, so. Thank you. 
We're in Philippians 1 today. Philippians 1, 12. But before we uh, read that passage, let's look at Matthew um, 14. Fourteen twenty-two. This is the story of Jesus walking on the water. And it says in verse 22, Immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side while he sent the crowds away. And you can read the rest of it. It talks about, you know, how most of us are familiar, how he causes the, the, the sea and the waves to be calm. But I'm, I'm really, I'm, what, what I wanted to look at was the one little word called made. And it says, immediately he made. If you may have a, another translation that says compelled, the word means to force. Now notice this. Did Jesus know that the storm was coming? What did he do to the disciples? He forced them to go into it. Okay? He, he, you know what that tells me? He is in control. Uh, years ago, I think you may have heard me tell this before, I was still in college. That's years ago, okay? And uh, I love to fly fish. And since I wasn't married at the time, I could go anytime I wanted to, okay? And so I'm not blaming my wife, okay? She would like to. She doesn't like to fly fish, okay? But anyway, uh, it, this was late spring up in Syracuse, New York. Now I don't know if you know about Syracuse. In late spring, there's a lot of snow still. So I decided to go to the Pulaski, New York, that's driving straight north on Interstate 81. And at the time I had a Impala, it was banana colored, okay, and I don't know if you know the Impalas are really long and wide, okay, and I decided to drive up there about 30 miles away on the snow-covered highway, okay. As I got just out of Syracuse, I hit an icy spot. And my car turned around, and I was going backwards on the interstate. You know, and I said, I'm in trouble now. And I, I landed up backwards in a, a snowbank. But you know what? God was in control. He was. I was saved that time, so he's watching over me. Um, the car was towed. It was undamaged, and so was I. Okay? So God was, God was in control of that situation. You know, and while I was waiting, you know, I felt imprisoned. Okay? Do we not sometimes feel imprisoned by our circumstances? You feel trapped. Uh, the pain won't go away. 
things seem hopeless, the situation seems endless, there is a feeling of oppression which overwhelms us, and so we become blue, we lose our song, and we're simply not happy. Now, Paul was in prison when he wrote Philippians. And you remember what the theme of Philippians is? Joy. So in his prison, he found joy. That's my encouragement for you and me today. That in our prison, whatever it may be, or maybe we're not in one now, but we will be someday, literally or figuratively, we need to find joy. In fact, the thought I have in this is this. Rejoice. Our prisons are under God's control. Okay? Rejoice. And that's what Paul realized. He rejoiced because he realized his prison was under God's control. Okay? So, let's uh, pray. Thank you, Lord, for your word. I pray the teaching and preaching of it will be clear and that we, through the power of the Holy Spirit, may understand and apply the principles and have joy. In your son's name, amen. So while he's in his prison, I'm going to put words into Paul's mouth. So three things Paul might have said in his prison. The first is this. God is in control when life is unfair. Let me say it again. God is in control when life is unfair. Verses 12 through 14. Now I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel, so that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and to everyone else, and that most of the brethren trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. Now, if you remember Paul's pathway to prison, I'm not going to go through all the passages. First of all, it was prophesied that he would go to prison by Agabus, the um, prophet. That's in Acts 21. And so he is arrested, Acts 21. He ends up in Caesarea in Acts 23. That's with, um, uh, I always get mixed up, Festus or Felix. I can't remember which one was first. And then he has an appeal to Caesar in Acts 25. And then in Acts 28, he ends up in prison in Rome. And so that's where he is now. One writer had this to say, although he was not writing this epistle from a dungeon, but a private residence, according to Acts 28, Paul was chained night and day to a Roman soldier. He had no privacy when he ate, when he slept, when he wrote, when he prayed, and when he preached, taught, and visited the friend. And I was thinking, did they accompany him to the outhouse? You know, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking this. How did he change his clothes if he was changed to a guard? When did he take a bath? 
Okay, you know, all these things. This was in a very embarrassing situation for him. Very restricting. But notice his trusting attitude in verse 12. In spite of the unfairness, the rejection by his countrymen of being in jail under house arrest, Paul says, verse 12, but I am desiring you to know, brothers, that the things against me have come rather to the furtherance of the gospel. I have it translated that way. He says, I am desiring you to know. That phrase is a common Greek expression, and it's often found in ancient Greek write, uh, letters. It, you have similar expressions like this, I want you to get this, or I want you to understand this. I'm desiring you to know. Paul wants us to realize that he means exactly what he is saying. He says, the things have, against me have come rather to the furtherance or to the advance of the gospel. Now that Greek word is from a verb originally used originally of a pioneer cutting his way through brushwood. So when he says furtherance or advance, this is describing not merely moving ahead, but doing so against obstacles. It was not easy being in prison. Even though he was under house arrest, it was still a hard time for him. It was an imprisonment. But he was advancing against the obstacles that he faced. And so from his own experiences, Paul wanted the believers at Philippi to learn an important truth. And here it is. And you've heard it before. There are no accidents with God. He is in control. There are no accidents with God. He is in control. Someone wrote this, in all probability, this optimism was not wholly shared by those whom Paul addresses. The church at Philippi was on tenderhooks. What is going to happen to Paul? Will he be condemned or will he be acquitted? This, that was a question which everyone was anxiously asking. Too bad for him and for the cause of the gospel, this imprisonment. That was what many people were thinking. But this is what Paul, his attitude was this. He realized that God was using him to spread the gospel in new and unique places. So he knew that God was in control. His present circumstances were not a surprise to his God. And his being in jail was not a hindrance to the gospel. In his eyes, his incarnation was a small cost that he was more than willing to pay. His enemies thought they had put him away. But Paul realized that God was in control. And he recognized and accepted this. This was a principle that Joseph also learned through all the trials he went. Genesis 45.8. Now, therefore, it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me the father to Pharaoh and lord of all his household and ruler of all the land of Egypt. Genesis 50.20. As for you, 
you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. And so we have this trusting attitude of Paul. This principle that you and I need to learn and have absolute assurance that no matter what circumstances we find ourselves in, God is in control. And when we find that God is in control, we can find true joy. I was just thinking about this this past week as I was going through this passage, and I was saying, you know, all the pain I've been going through for the last few months, that sometimes it's just really hard to accept and get really blue about it. And I had to go back to the fact that God is allowing this for some reason. He's in control of, of my body, of my situation. And I can trust him and rejoice in that. I know something else in verse 13. Paul's powerful witness. So he's in prison, but he has a powerful witness. Verse 13. So that my bonds in Christ have become visible to the complete praetorian guard and to all the rest. People realize that Paul was in jail for preaching the gospel. And while he was there, he even gospelized his prison guards. He was in a, pr a private house in Rome, and the palace guard probably refers to the members of the imperial guard who guarded Paul day and night. Let me read you about that. They were originally 10,000 of these picked soldiers, concentrated in Rome by Tiberius. They had double pay and special privileges and became so powerful that emperors had to, had to court their favor. Though Paul resided in his own rented facility, he was guarded by these soldiers all the time. The custom was for a prisoner to be chained at the wrist to a soldier. Paul's chains were somewhat longer than a modern handcuff, about 18 inches long. One end was attached to the prisoner's wrist and the other to the guards. The chain was not removed from the prisoner as long as he was in custody, making both escape and privacy impossible. And I, can you imagine this? Paul is a very talkative man. Okay? okay? As you read his writing, you can tell that. And so here he is, chained to his audience, so that day and night he can tell them about one thing, Jesus Christ. Okay? They probably got tired of hearing it, some of them did. But others, they were convinced of the gospel. You know, Paul, Paul would just talk to him. And he would communicate with him. Then he would finally ask, you, ask him the question, if you were to die, where would your soul spend eternity? And again, Paul would tell him about Jesus. And he'd tell them about the one who died and rose again from the dead. Let me read you something else. Although the apostle was allowed to live in private quarters, he was chained in a manner to a series of soldiers for a period of two years. Over those years, it is possible that several dozen different soldiers were assigned to guard Paul, and each one became his captive audience. If they're not already aware of it, these soldiers soon came to realize 
that this amazing man was not imprisoned for committing a crime, but for preaching the gospel. His faithfulness in the cause of Christ soon became well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and to everyone else. The faithful believers in the church at Rome had no doubt long prayed that the Lord would open a way to witness to the elite and influential Praetorian Guard. In his sovereign wisdom, he answered that prayer by making members of that guard captive to Paul for two years. You know what that tells me? Again, God is in control. He placed Paul in this, this position, being chained to these elite guards. He would call them special forces, maybe, to them. And he could witness to them. And many of them got saved. God's in control. And in that, Paul would rejoice. Verse 14 is Paul's encouraging example. Paul's example in prison was so powerful that it motivated others to spread the gospel. Verse 14. And the greater part of the brethren, having been confident by my bond, have abundant courage to speak the word without fear. Notice Paul's bondage and his attitude in that bondage persuaded many believers to speak the gospel without fear. They said, if Paul can do what he is doing in his circumstance, where he is, then I can be faithful where I am. And they would preach the gospel. How could Paul have such a positive attitude, have such a powerful witness, and such an encouraging example in his unfair situation in life? It is because he knew and accepted the fact that God is in control when life is unfair and he could rejoice. The second principle Paul would have said to us, God is in control when people hurt us. That's, that's very hard, is it not, to accept that? God is in control when people hurt us. Paul had his enemies. Not everything was you know, hunky-dory all over the place. He had enemies. Verse 15. On the one hand, some preach through envy and strife. So there were those people who were motivated by this envy, which is the desire to deprive others of what is rightfully theirs, and, they, and motivated by strife which refers to contention. These enemies were jealous how God was using Paul. So they sought to divide the congregation and to turn people against Paul and to hurt him. They may have been a group of antagonists within the the local church at Philippi or there in Rome, and they they called themselves Christians, but they're only that by by you know, what they called themselves. They were not that in actuality, and they wanted to hurt Paul. So Paul had enemies, and they hurt him. But on the other side, Paul had friends. But on the other hand, continuing on verse 15, some are preaching Christ through goodwill towards me. 
the latter out of love, knowing that I am appointed unto the defense of the gospel. There, though Paul had enemies, there were those who really cared for him. They had no question as to why he was in ministry, and they loved him deeply. And they were the ones that were mentioned in verse 14. His example before and in prison encouraged them to be faithful. Their goodwill speaks of their motive, the positive motive of desiring to do what is best for others. One writer had these words. Those believers in Rome not only did not criticize Paul, but also enthusiastically supported him and appreciated his work. Their motives were unselfishly pure. They were sympathetic and grateful to the apostle for his faithfulness in proclaiming the gospel and for his loving ministry to them. And so, as you read this text, can you not sense Paul's gratefulness for people like this in this situation? They sought to serve with him instead of against him, together glorifying the Lord in their joint effort to spread the gospel. And Paul in his situation where these people, where we had people against him, where they were hurting him, and he had friends, he possessed one attitude that sometimes we forget. He had the long look. He had a long look. Verse 17. The former are proclaiming Christ out of rivalry, not with pure motives, supposing they are raising up afflictions in my bonds. They were even doing spiritual things, but they were doing it with the wrong motive. Let me ask you, can people teach and preach in a local church for the wrong reasons? Well, you know the answer to that. Can people be deacons, Sunday school teachers, junior church leaders, or any other officer in the local church for the wrong reasons? You know what the wonder of it, you know what the wonder of it all is? God can still accomplish his will in spite of all this. Uh, in, uh, over the years, I've just been amazed how God has used the ministry of Victory Baptist Church in lives of people. Paul knew that there were those who wanted to hurt him out of contention or selfish ambition. He knew he could do nothing about their actions. Remember, he was in prison. He couldn't do anything. So they afflicted him. That means they, they had friction against him. Now, they may have even been speaking the truth, verse 18, or what? Yet that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is being proclaimed. In this, I am, notice that word, I am rejoicing. Even though he was being attacked, even though these people, there were people that were using the ministry for their own gain to hurt Paul, and, and others were using you know, the ministry to proclaim the truth. Paul says, I rejoice. I am rejoicing. Even though the gospel may have been used as a camouflage for personal gain, it was still the power of God unto salvation. Remember, even in the Old Testament, God used the mouth of an ass to get his message across to someone. And he can still do that today. They thought they were sticking a knife in Paul's back. But Paul knew this, that God's word does not return void. He used his word. Someone wrote these words. God honors his word. 
not the man or the organization. We need to recognize that today. The Spirit of God is the only one who can bring blessings. And he can bless only when the word of God is given out. And that's what Paul was doing. He was rejoicing. God's word was being spread. People were being infected for the gospel. How could Paul keep on walking with God and not get bitter when his so-called Christian brothers were doing their best to discredit and destroy him? He knew. He knew and accepted that his God was in control even when others hurt him. And he knew that some God, someday his God would make all things right. So he could rejoice. He could rejoice in his circumstance. A third thing Paul might have told us is this. God is in control when life is uncertain. God is in control when life is uncertain. Do we not live in uncertain times? You know, I used to remember when, you know, when I was a kid and my dad was in the Air Force, I knew that he could do 20 years and retire and, you know, and then you know, he, could still make, he could still live. That's not the way it is today. You know, people can't play, stay in one place very long or, or 20 years and then retire no matter what the business is. It doesn't happen very often anymore. Okay? There are a few exceptions. I've been here 25 years, but I'm not planning on retiring. Okay? But there are a few exceptions. But in most places, he can't. Okay? We, life is uncertain. Now, in this uncertainty, there are a few, there are a few uh, principles I'd like to mention. First of all, when life is uncertain, hold on to joy. When life is uncertain, hold on to joy. Notice the middle ver- at the end of verse 18, Paul says, but I shall also rejoice. See, his life is, I don't know about you, but being in jail where he was, where you know, the next day the Caesar could say, off with his head, could happen. For Paul, life was uncertain. But he says, I shall also rejoice. Someone wrote these words, anything other than sin no matter how difficult, painful, or disappointing, need not take away the believer's joy. Yet even minor, minor things can do so if believers react sinfully to them. A change for the worse in health, job, finances, personal relationships, or other important areas of life can easily cause believers to question the Lord. His sovereign wisdom and his gracious provision. When that happens, joy is one of the first casualties. Believers are especially vulnerable when such things happen suddenly, taking them off guard. Their response is often one of anger, doubt, distrust, fear, self-pity, ingratitude, or complaining. In such cases, events that are not sinful in themselves lead to simple responses that steal joy. And let's face it, does not life hurt sometimes? Living hurts? You know, if we, if we don't believe that, you know, if we're wearing rose-colored glasses or we have our head d- buried deep in the sand, but life, life really does hurt. All, 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 all areas of life, it can hurt in relationships, 
finances, diseases, aging, accidents, you know, and the idea of persecution is becoming more and more real to us. It's happening in Afghanistan right now to our, some of our brothers and sisters in Christ. What we need is a change in our perspective towards pain and uncertainty. Let me read you a story. Out west, a cowboy was driving down a dirt road. His dog riding in the back of his pickup, his faithful horse in the trailer behind. He failed to negotiate a curve and had a terrible accident. Sometime later, a highway patrol officer came on the scene. An animal lover, he saw the horse first. Realizing the serious nature of his injuries, he drew his service revolver and put the animal out of his misery. He walked around the accident and found the dog, also hurt critically. He couldn't bear to hear it whine in pain, so he ended the dog's suffering as well. Finally, he located the cowboy, who had suffered multiple fractures off in the weeds. Hey, are you okay, the, the cop asked. The cowboy took one look at the smoking revolver in the trooper's hand and quickly replied, never felt better. <laughs> he had a change in perspective. That's what we need when we look at our pain and our uncertainty. And what's the greatest changer of the perspective? Paul tells us, I am rejoicing in God's control. James put it this way. Count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking none, nothing. And John MacArthur had this comment. Paul's example of selfless humility shows the worst circumstances are, the worst the circumstances are, the greater joy can be. When the seemingly secure things in life begin to collapse, when suffering and sorrow increase, believers should be drawn into ever deeper fellowship with the Lord. It is then that they will more fully experience the enduring joy the apostle knew so well. This joy is far greater and more satisfying than any fleeting circumstantial happiness. And this unmixed joy comes not because of circumstances, but in spite of them and through them. Did you catch that? The joy comes in spite of the circumstances and through the circumstances. That's why God sends us through those, those certain painful times. So when life is uncertain, hold on to joy. A second thought I, I find in verse 19. When life is uncertain, depend upon prayer. For I know that this shall turn out for deliverance for me through your supplications. Paul believed that the present opposition that he faced would work out for good because Christians were praying for him. 
People were praying. Prayer. Things would turn out for his deliverance or lead to his deliverance. Paul said, I know that I will be delivered from threatened execution. I will be vindicated by the emperor's ruling or eventually released from prison. Or my final deliverance, if, if, I, if I'm not released and if I am martyred, I will enter into heaven's glory. And that's the best kind of deliverance. How, how does he know this? He tells his readers, through your prayers. Now this particular Greek word is used in the New Testament for prayer about pleading to God on someone's behalf. You're praying for me. He says, that. You, know, you know, that was, you know, when I was going through the recovery from the accident, one of the greatest encouragements for me was knowing that people prayed. And, you know, we need, to, we need to know that. And all of us need it. And intercessory prayer is powerful. Do we believe that? Paul did. He had confidence that God would answer the prayer of those who prayed for him. And so when life is uncertain, depend upon prayer. Not only your own prayers, the prayers of others for you. And then a third principle is this. When life is uncertain, trust the Spirit. Second, in the middle of verse 19, and supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. Paul also believed that God would deliver him through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. See, in his situation, Paul couldn't do anything about changing it. So he needed to depend upon God's spirit to help him and deliver him. And he was confident that God could do that through his spirit. He says, through the supply of the spirit, through the provision and help. It describes a full, bountiful, and sufficient supply of what is needed. And so this Holy Spirit is our sufficient source of everything we need. For example... The Spirit gives us guidance as to as what to say when we don't know what to say. Matthew 10, 19, and 20. But when they deliver you up, do not worry about what you about how or what you should speak. For it will be given you in that hour what you should speak. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father who speaks in you. The Spirit of God helps us to pray. That's the supply for us. Romans 8, 26. Likewise, the Spirit also helps in our weaknesses. For we do not know what we should pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. He is sufficient source of our power because he empowers us. Acts 1, 8. But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. The Spirit produces abundant fruit in our lives. Very familiar verses in Galatians 5, 22 and 23. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, self-control. Against such there is no law. So what my encouragement for us is, is this. When life is uncertain, 
why not trust the Spirit to help us through that uncertainty? Why not trust him? Why not yield to him and walk in him? A fourth principle is found in verse 20. When life is uncertain, magnify Jesus. When life is uncertain, magnify Jesus. Verse 20. According to my earnest expectation and hope, because in nothing I shall be ashamed, but in all boldness as always, even now shall Christ be magnified in my body, whether through life or through death. Isn't that uncertainty? I don't know whether I'm going to live or I'm going to die. But, what, but though I don't know that, one thing I will do, he says, Christ shall be magnified in my body. Magnify Jesus. He says, according to my earnest expectation, that, that phrase, earnest expectation, literally means to look intently into the distance with an outstretched head. Um, so it has the idea of keen anticipation of the future. You know, you know, you know um, when, when people are driving by a, an auto wreck, they call it rubbernecking, remember? They stick their head out and they try, you know, they try to stretch it out as far as possible. That's the idea. But the idea here is looking forward with necks outstretched into the future expectation of God's blessings. It says expectation and hope, what I find is assured. And he, Paul says his whole being is straining to magnify Jesus Christ. All his years of ministry, all his sacrifice, all his pain were not for his selfish ends or desires, goals, and wants. They were all for the Lord. And in all things, he sought to uplift and make great, that's what magnify means, to make great the name and person of Jesus Christ. This is the same attitude that John the Baptist had. John 3, 28 through 30. You yourselves bear me witness that I, I said, I am not the Christ, but that I am sent before him. He that hath the bridegroom, he that hath the bride is the bridegroom. But the friend of the bridegroom which standeth and heareth him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. This my joy therefore is fulfilled, fulfilled. And he says that he ends the statement this way. He must increase and I must decrease. What is, what is John saying? I'm magnifying this person, Jesus. That's what Paul was doing. Throughout his ministry, through everything he went through, he sought to magnify Christ. So different in the church today, unfortunately. We magnify people like the world does. We magnify entertainment over truth. We hold on to great men despite their departure from the simple gospel. We magnify our wants over our sacrifice for Christ. We magnify our careers over service to Jesus. We magnify sports over service to Jesus. We hold on to what we can touch, earn, or claim tighter then we hold on to Jesus. 
Paul says, whether I live or I die, my goal is to make Jesus great. Whether I live or whether I die, my goal is to make Jesus great. How could he live that way? How could he have that kind of attitude? He knew with all his heart that God was in control. Even when life was uncertain, and in all of this, he sought to glorify his God. Gladys Aylward was a missionary to China last century. She was forced to flee when the Japanese invaded Yangcheng, but she could not leave her work behind. With only one assistant, she led more than 100 orphans over the mountains toward free China. In their book, The Hidden Price of Greatness, Ray Besson and uh, Renelda Hunsinker tell what happened. During Gladys's harrowing journey out of war-torn Yangcheng, she grappled with, his, with despair as never before. After passing a sleepless night, she faced the morning with no hope of reaching safety. A 13-year-old girl in the, in the group reminded her of the much-loved story of Moses and the Israelites crossing the Red Sea. But I am not Moses, Gladys cried in desperation. The girl said this, of course you aren't, but Jehovah is still God. And so God is in control. When she and, and the orphans made it through, they proved once again that no matter how inadequate we feel, God is still God, God is in control, and we can trust him. And because of that, and that's what's happening in Paul's life, he could rejoice when life was uncertain. And you and I can too. Now, is God in control? Is he? Whenever we're faced with a crucial decision, someone wrote these words, our generation has been taught to ask, what is, what's in it for me? Will it give me pleasure, profit, security, fulfillment? We're not necessarily opposed to God, we just fit him in where, wherever or whenever he's able to help us. The idea that our will should be subjected to his control, even when our personal ambitions are at stake, is not easy to accept. We can earn, assent mentally to God's control, but in practice, we might spend our lives pleasing ourselves. Now, my question is this. In our present situations in life, what is our prison? What prison are you in right now? Is God in control while you're in your prison? Do we see his hand in our prisons? Do we acknowledge that our God is in control while we're in that prison? Can we say with Paul, God is in control when life is unfair? God is in control when people hurt me? God is in control when life is uncertain. I like what the psalmist wrote in these words. In Psalm 31, verse 15, he wrote these words. My times are in your hand. Deliver me from the hand of my enemies and from those who persecute me. 
the writer says, my times. You know, you know what that Hebrew word uh, time means? Well, first of all, we know something before I go to the meaning. It's plural. That means more than one time, right? My times. The Hebrew word means point of time. Or it could be a period of time, but seen as a point in my life. So all the points of time in my life are in God's hand. Now, what is, when we say it's in God's hand, what does he mean? They're in your control, God, right? So all my points in time are in God's control. So whatever happens when you get home, whether it's good or bad, it's in God's hand, under God's control. Ten hours later, yeah, tomorrow morning, tomorrow afternoon, next week, next month, next year, any point in time that you have, or you look back into the past, any point in time has always been in God's control. And the writer says, deliver me or save me to free me from harm or evil. Actually, it's, it's used in some context, free me from my prison. Okay. Deliver me from my prison. In this case, it's the hand of my enemies and those who persecute me. Now, my thought is this, as I thought about that. Because my times are in his hand, I know that God is in control. And because God is in control, I can find joy in him. Now, again, let me ask us. Have we accepted the fact that God is in control? I like what Charles Swindoll wrote. God's calling the shots. He's running the show. Either he's in full control or he's off his throne. Okay? He wants us to accept his controls over all things, even our lives. Let me close you with this. Close with this. We need to hear, if someone wrote this, we need to hear that God is still in control. We need to hear that it's not over until he says so. We need to hear that life's mishaps and tragedies are not a reason to bail out. They are simply a reason to sit tight. Corey Tenboom used to say, when the train goes through a tunnel and the world gets dark, do you jump out? Of course not. You sit still and trust the engineer to get you through. Next time you're disappointed, don't panic. Don't jump out. Don't give up. Just be patient and let God remind you he's still in control. And this writer ends, it ain't over till it's over. God's in control. And because he is, we get back to Paul, what he's telling us in this passage. Because he's in control, I, I am rejoicing. And we need to get that way too. Please stand with me. Father, I pray that we've been encouraged or challenged this morning with the truth. Because we live in very uncertain times. And many of us, if not all of us, have gone through some really tough times. 
and we need you. And we know that life is unfair and people hurt us and things are uncertain, but you're there, you're in charge. And we can rejoice with assurance that you will work out your will in our lives. In your son's name, amen. Please take your hymnals, please. Turn to number 680, Rejoice in the Lord.
us today. I pray that you've been blessed and encouraged in the truth. May God give you a good week, good week this upcoming, these upcoming days. Amen.